It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and Paul Hayward, the author and columnist. Chaos, disinformation, and disappointment in Paris. A sour end to a significant season. Despite winning two cups, Liverpool are left to consider what might have been. There's also a bigger picture to consider. What price football when children are tear-gassed and a match? Frankly, it should make us fear for the future of the game. John, you're at the Stade de France. Your perspective, please, as an eyewitness. Well, just shocking, really. Shocked and appalled, and it, it just seems so badly organised. Just from my perspective, I, I got there ridiculously early. I do get to games ridiculously early, and about half past four, and the sort of facilities only opened at four, bearing in mind you're sort of talking about local time and nine o'clock kickoff. And already then I could I could just see the sort of uh, almost unnecessary pinch points from the area that I came in. I mean, it's served by quite a few stations, and there's one that's that, that's sort of almost the stadium station, if you like. And a lot of Liverpool fans were coming there. It was incredibly busy already. So to say that the sort of fans arrive late is just it's just wrong and and frankly lying. And that you could see the pinch points through the tunnels. You could see the pinch points where sort of stewards were kind of creating their own bottle unnecessary bottlenecks. If if I if I'm honest, and thinking oh, this, you know, and you could just feel sometimes a bit of an atmosphere in the air, and I just I could actually sense that. And I, we got in early, and then you quickly became aware, don't you, when when people were sort of beginning to talk and. You know, where you are in the press area, you can nip outside almost and see it unfold because you're sort of almost on an upper level as you go in. And you can see on the big concourse, is, which is where a lot of fans coming up ramps and are congregating. And then you can also see below and you can see such obvious problems unfolding. You know, journalists who are arriving a bit after us a bit closer to the game itself were clearly caught up in the problems and, and then those of us that went outside could see those problems unfolding and the desperation on people's faces. You know, it's 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 terrible when you can't really do anything more about them and there's no way possible to put yourself in the shoes 
of a parent who's taking a child to the game. And then they're both being tear gassed, both being caught up in it. And I was talking to someone on the on the Eurostar back home yesterday and, you know, he had this dilemma with a nine-year-old. And it was just, what on earth do you do? That terror. They, they will never forget that experience and that sheer terror that they experienced. And, and I guess it will put the parent off and it will put the child off. And and that's just so wrong on so many levels. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of fans, aren't there, Paul? You, you can see on social media because it's interesting this debate has been accelerated through social media through all the eyewitness accounts that we can see but this is the nub of the issue isn't it we're all parents a lot of fans as i said saying never again is the game itself in more trouble than it realizes because you know so much has been made about turning the champions league final into football super bowl and all those sort of pretensions. Are the big events too big, and is the organisation too poor? Well, I think there's a cultural problem in, in football now. There's a contempt for the spectator, the live spectator. There's a, there's a lack of interest in the well-being of the live spectator. And this has happened two summers in a row now with a UEFA showcase event, Euro 2020 final in London at Wembley. As we know, there was a violent stadium invasion. The responsibility for that lay with the with the local authorities and particularly the Met Police. And now we've seen a, a Champions League final twelve months later, you know, rendered hollow. It was it was impossible to watch that game with the, the usual feelings. I, I I it's a long time since I've been as excited about a Champions League final as I was about that one. But by the time the game kicked off, I just thought this is pretty meaningless because mm. because the, the safety of so many people had been compromised. So again, that's two summers in a row we've seen this situation where people hoping to go and take their families and children to, you know, defining events, showpiece football occasions, a European Championship final, a Champions League final between Liverpool and Real Madrid. Anybody would look at those pictures and images and read the accounts of, of, of John and his colleagues and say, I'm not taking my child anywhere near an event like that. And, and unless the authorities understand, you know, the, the, the depth of the damage they're doing by misorganising these events, <clears throat> this is going to spread like wildfire through people and people are going to say, no chance, I'm not going anywhere near it. Yeah, and I think, you know, and obviously you were there, John, so you'll know that it seems that the first instinct is always to shift the blame to the fans. You know, it, it appears that UEFA and the French authorities have a case to answer, yet... You know, there was that initial smokescreen of, oh, yes, it's a late arrival of fans. Again, being there in real time, when they announced that it was down to ticketless fans or fans arriving late, what was your first instinct? Was that, was it, well, I just don't, don't believe that. No, just nonsense. Just absolute nonsense. I didn't believe that for a second. It was really interesting that with about an hour and a half till kickoff, the Real Madrid end, if you like, was, was was full. And the Liverpool end was, even an hour before the game, was disarmingly empty. And you thought, what's what's going on there? And 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 it's just so naive to suggest then that every Liverpool fan, just as a, as a matter of course, has just arrived late. The simple truth is that I actually think that they were treated differently as a set of fans. You know, we have got a, a certain reputation, I guess, English football fans. And and frankly, 
on this occasion, they, they were treated differently, in my view, as a, almost as a result of reputation, which is completely and utterly grossly unfair. Because I, I tell you, I didn't see any reason or cause for trouble or concern over those two days that I was in Paris. The Liverpool fans were in great spirits, in great voice, were really well behaved. There was no issue whatsoever. It really did feel like Paris was vibrant and bouncing. It was a good atmosphere around the place. And and I just thought it was, it was appalling. Look, we have had, haven't we, towards the end of the season, big crowd issues. And, and I've actually felt, in tackling those, we should be aware uh, and, and sort of question whether that's as partly as a backlash of people almost being let off the leash after the pandemic. And it's a, almost a reaction against society. There was none of that this time, I promise you. It just was a totally different atmosphere. People have gone to great lengths to go to a game, to great expense. And the, you just thought, no, they're there for the football. This is right and this is good. And... The fan part, you know, a lot of fans who hadn't got tickets, who weren't going to the game, have gone there. And they were treated badly as well, by the way, particularly at the end. So it had a totally different vibe. And and, and I have to say that, you know, the, the, the organisation of it felt appalling. UEFA put something around earlier in the week about counterfeit tickets. So they were clearly anxious about it. And I think they've overreacted on it. And then you see the other interesting thing that caught my eye was on social media was the amount of ticketless local fans that were getting through. Dozens of clips of that. Stewards on the doors actually waving them through. And then as the game kicked off, what was interesting to me was you could see the the very clearly partitioned Real Madrid end, but the, the Liverpool end was completely, particularly into the game when fans were coming in. Now, a lot of fans, hundreds, I think we're talking, gave up and went home. They were sent away with allegedly counterfeit tickets when I've no doubt that they were genuine, quite as Andy Robertson was was explaining. And yet the, the, the end was absolutely chock-a-block and full to brimming. Why? Because people had got in with counterfeit tickets, possibly locals, I don't know, by sheer getting through the turnstiles. And so that, that, that ground, that end, was poorly run, poorly policed and stewarded and left Liverpool fans, genuine Liverpool fans who, by the way, created a brilliant atmosphere during the game, at risk because it was so badly organised, so poorly run. And 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 I do think, to, Paul's so right, it's two summers running. Yes, England fans, you know, have to take their share of the blame for that, but it was still badly organised on many levels. And it feels like they haven't learned lessons from the Euros final going into this Champions League final, which I have to say on... UEFA's part is appalling. Seferin around the Super League has been banging this drum. Fans come first. We're after the fans. We're, you know, we're all about the fans. Are you? Well, I, I honestly, as someone who's gone to so many games as a match-going fan down the years, I've never felt that, and that attitude hasn't changed. Fans are treated with contempt and as second-class citizens. And frankly, if this isn't a wake-up-and-smell-the-coffee moment for UEFA, then then nothing will be, because... The, the brilliant Liverpool fans that were out in force and the great support just didn't deserve that this weekend. Yeah, I think the thing is, we've all been smelling the coffee for years, haven't we? We've got to a stage, Paul, haven't we, where, you know, the rhetoric is, is, is grandiose, you know, the commercial activity is, is, is overwhelming. Is it inevitable in this modern age that football and big occasions are shaped by money and politics? 
Absolutely. The, you know, the fact that they had an opening show, a really fairly grotesque opening show while children were being tear-gassed outside, showed you the disconnect, really, that the organisers have fallen into about what really matters about these events. What matters is that everybody's able to go there safely and that they're well organised and, and well policed. Those are the first priorities, not, not laying on a global extravaganza for your sponsors and commercial partners and you know global audiences if you can't get the basics right of 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 organizing access to a stadium then the rest of it becomes meaningless frankly and yeah i would agree mike that they've 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 taken their eye off what what really matters with these events it's about the football match it's about the spectators it's about the safety of people and it's about you know, the, the game living up to its billing uh, and, and, and not this commercial mania. And a lot of people will feel deep down that there is enough money in football already. You know, everybody's rich enough. Everybody's got their, their, their hand in the trough. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people. And yet this mania continues, you know, this, this obsession with creating uh, the football brand, the, the, the global showcase, the commercial juggernaut. And we know where that comes from. Part of it's human nature, part of it's greed. It's the way sport, all sports are developing, in fact. You know, the, 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 the making of money is, is taking precedence over the, the governance of the sport and the running of the game. But it doesn't mean we have to applaud, and it certainly means we have to call them out for it. True. From a footballing perspective, John, a case of what if for Liverpool? If you think about it, only four defeats in 63 games throughout the season, which gives you an idea of the standards in terms of playing standards that are operating at the moment. Yeah, it's a, it was um, a disappointing end to the season for a team which did end up winning two trophies. So uh, it felt like in the, in the course of the last six days of the season, you know, from the Sunday of the Premier League final day when they could have snatched the title you know, particularly when City was slipping up. And then the Champions League final, you know, it's ended on a low for Liverpool. And and I guess Jurgen Klopp will say, I told you so, basically, because no no team has done the quadruple and it's incredibly difficult to balance 63 games. And, and frankly, for me, the biggest thing was that they ran out of legs. I think Salah was really sharp, so unlucky not to, not to score, but for a brilliant Courtois virtuoso performance. I mean, Thiago played so well, but there were fitness doubts over him and Fabinho. And and I just think Robertson has been a driving force. Wow, it looked as if he'd had a long, hard season. Is there a better left-back in the world when when he's on song? I'm not sure that there is. But you soon, you soon, you know, really noticed, I think, that he was struggling, I think, in, the, in those last few weeks because he so, played so much football. Mm. And I think that it does, it feels like a bit of almost a bit of a point now for Liverpool where there's going to be a sort of almost a natural turnover of player. I think Mane, it feels like he's going to leave. He's pushing to leave. He's got a year left. Maybe Liverpool can't let both Mane and Salah both go into the final year. Maybe that's in their thinking. Luis Diaz is is coming in. Canate is replacing Matic as first choice along Van Dijk. And the team is just turning over a little bit. And I just think, feel as if from... A brilliant season. We shouldn't take away because they've still won the double. They've still enjoyed the victory parade yesterday. The fans still happy. I do still think you know we're beginning to see a little bit of turnover. There's no goals in three finals and and, and sixty one shots. It's absolutely astonishing stat that. And um, for Liverpool, free scoring team, 
I mean, wow, small margins and all that. But wow, it's it's incredible. You know, they've won two trophies on two penalty shootouts and, and probably feel, yeah, it's been disappointing, which says a lot for their standards. Yeah, isn't, isn't that almost, Paul, an indication of, of, you know, the macro issue here, which is the calendar's too crowded. You know, we, we're going into a sequence now of international football in the in the Nations League where, frankly, I've yet to meet anyone who cares about that. You've had Mane and Mo Salah with their international commitments. It's no surprise that players are getting burnt out, is it? No, it's not. I mean, as we know, they played in every game available to them this season, Liverpool. But, I mean, I just I wanted to challenge that idea, though, that, that because they didn't score in three finals, that was indicative of some kind of flaw because, I mean, they scored 147 goals in all competitions. They went to penalty shootouts with Chelsea, so it wasn't against, you know, Wrexham or somebody that they were taken to penalty shootouts. And they scored 17 penalties in those two shootouts, by the way, won two of those three cups. And in six days, they lost the league by a point and the Champions League final by a goal after an astounding performance by Courtois in the Real Madrid goal. So, you know, when you when I look at it that way, I, I, I don't see that pattern that some people have diagnosed of, of Liverpool kind of falling short when it matters, you know, not scoring in finals. They could easily have scored against Real Madrid had Courtois not been absolutely inspired. So... But as we know, you know, what, what, what starts out as a, a magical campaign to win the quadruple can turn into the FA Cup and League Cup quite quickly by the narrow margin of one point in the league and one goal in a Champions League final. So I kind of feel for them, really. They're, they're much better than their trophy hall would suggest. But to answer your question, Mike, um, yeah, I think when you look at players going into a Champions League final and you tot up what they've done since the previous summer... You know, you wonder how they're still standing. And I think also Liverpool had the emotional come down of losing the league, of course, you know, six days previously. And, you know, I don't care who you are. If you're going into a Champions League final after a disappointment like that, it, it, it might just take the edge off you. It might just, you know, the, the, the conviction and the buoyancy in Liverpool's play that we've seen all season was bound to be reduced by 5 or 10% in Paris on top of the physical fatigue. But really, as I said, to answer your point, absolutely, what we're asking players to do, even with big squads in rotation now, is 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 beyond the pale. Mm. You mentioned you know, the evolution of the, of the Liverpool team, John. What is the next phase? Do they need more creativity in midfield, do you think? And, and also, can you address, please, Trent Alexander-Arnold? You know, he's clearly not got the instincts of a natural defender but he's such a critical factor within that team how do you square that circle yeah and by, by the way I, I, you found someone who likes the nation's league in me by the way really i, I, I absolutely <laughs> passionately stand up for it but there you go anyway we'll, we'll, maybe we'll come on to that later but um but look I, I, alexander arnold i do think do you know what i did I, so i did my player ratings which i did with my match report and then basically I made Alexander-Arnold, he's controversial. I made him Liverpool's best player. And I know that he's, you could blame him partly on the goal. But we've got to stop Valverde being able to, A, receive the ball out there, B, being given so much time and space to, to cross it. And then it completely dissects the Liverpool penalty area. Well, where's everyone else? And yes, you know, Vinicius Jr., who frankly I think has been fantastic this season and taken his game to a whole new level and is a genuine world star now. 
is left alone at the back post. But I, I just feel as if Alexander-Arnold, yes, that's the downside of him, if you like. And, a def, you know, a defensive fullback would have stayed more at home and might have been on that back post to, to put it out for, for a corner. And, that, and I understand that. But the other point about Alexander-Arnold was that he was the most influential player on the pitch for Liverpool in the other direction. And he has been for so many games this season when, where he almost shifts into midfield and the ball always goes to him. He's there. He's not playing as fullback. He's playing as much more marauding as that. But he can. He almost dictates the game. And I'm not, I think this is the reason why England struggles so badly to, to fit him in because you can't play him as a normal player. He's not a normal player. He's so gifted. He's so talented. And he makes things tick and he's crossing. He's brilliant. His passing is great. And I just thought everything went through him. There were other contenders, of course. There were Salah was so unlucky. I think Thiago was terrific. And I just thought, you know, Alexander-Arnold, don't... I don't know that we always need to kind of, you know, because some of his defending bits are good. But he, he will have those moments because he's up the the other end and you have to compensate for that. But I think the positives outweigh the negatives. I think in midfield they found this brilliant balance, haven't they, with, with Thiago and Fabinho. And I think Henderson is still such a strong character and leader. But I do feel as if that midfield trio will probably be tweaked again. And I wonder whether it will be Henderson. But Henderson always rises to any challenge. And I think that basically that balance, because they've got Fabinho as the best holder, I think, in, 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 in football. And Thiago this season has been an absolute joy. So how do you improve that midfield? I think, you know, there's one area and I think Henderson will probably have to embrace that challenge again. Mm. What are Manchester City, Paul? They've won Premier League leagues uh, under 16, under 17, under 18, under 23 levels, in addition to winning the senior title. What are the implications of that sort of dominance? Well, every time we, every time City win the, the league, the senior league, we all write, is this the start of a dynasty? It's one of those standard follow-up pieces, isn't it? it? Is. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, you ripped the, rip the, rip the, rip the rug from under my feet there, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get, get cracking on that one, Chrissy. Come on, we need, we, need, we need this piece. Come on, get on with it. Um, and if you win the league four out of five seasons, you, I think you're pretty safely, you're safe in writing, yes, it is the start of a dynasty, you know, in an incredibly competitive age. I, I can remember thinking many times, no team's going to ever dominate the Premier League because there's too much money in it and too many too many great powers um, taking you on the whole time. But City are starting to get into that position where they're owning the the league title. And then, Mike, when you talk about, I didn't know that about those all those underage teams, the representative teams, also winning their leagues, and it suggests that they've they've got a, a system and a supply line and a, and a culture in place that goes way beyond the first team and Pep Guardiola's, you know, magical entertainers. So if they're building that deeply into the into the structure of of, the, of top flight football in this country, it suggests that this is going to go on and on and on. But are we sure that? those young players, all those good young players in those winning title-winning teams are going to make it through to the first team because not many do still now. They don't feed many young players through to their first 11, Guardiola's first 11. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I wait to be convinced that that's, that's really going to be the end result of all this, this good work at youth level. When you look around, John, eras evolve, strategies shift, 
where are the solutions to be found to actually combat the wealth and influence of these state-funded clubs? You know, the cost of trying to compete is going up, isn't it? You think about it, right? Tottenham, they are raising £150 million, getting Ivan Perisic in today, it seems. Is that enough to make a dent? So I, I I do think it's a it is a concern because I do think that Tottenham, you know, wrote this myself last week actually about the sort of kind of the raising of the hundred and fifty million pounds, you know, and it's to persuade it clearly is to persuade Antonio Conte to stay to underline their ambition. But then actually, if you look at what they need to do to kind of, you know, tie down those players who've been on on a loan with an option or a loan with a view. Then actually, some of that money is very, very quickly swallowed up, and it feels like, oh, wow, okay, Perisic arriving for a big contract and nothing else, and then, but he's a very good player. Please don't get me wrong, but you won't see Spurs getting too many huge, huge signings, and and they're trying to do it, uh, almost trying to catch up on a budget. It'd be so interesting the the Todd Bowley era at Chelsea, because, I mean, Abramovich did at various points bankroll Chelsea and go a huge expense to try and challenge wealth elsewhere. But American owners tend to be much more self-sufficient and, and trying to, to run it almost responsibly, shall we say. I mean, Real Madrid, I know we sort of kind of talk about well, will the Champions League times will make them more attractive. Well, did it for Mbappe? No. I know he's, you know, recommitted himself, if you like, to, to PSG before they've won the Champions League. But ultimately, they're in the Champions League final it was a chance and, and they couldn't attract him. So I do think that other clubs on that cusp and trying to, you know, sort of make up the gap, whether that's at domestic level in the Premier League or indeed in the Champions League, will be worried. There's so much worry and concern, I think, in, in countries like Italy, Germany and the sort of second tier club, if you like, in, in, in Spain, that the Premier League is completely running out of control in terms of wealth and what they can then afford. And that is the underlying reason why the Super League simply will not go away. So on the one hand, we sort of say, well, we don't like that state-funded dominance. But on the other hand, we're saying, well, we don't like the Super League either. And a lot of those clubs will be wondering, what on earth can we do? You know, the Juventus of this world sort of thing, the, the clubs that are still in it will be thinking, well, how can we bridge that gap? And the answer is, I don't think you can. Mm. This is our final podcast of the season. So, you know, with all that in mind, I want to try and, and look, you know, not just at one, two, three clubs, but just almost spread our attention across the league, if we could, with a few almost alternative awards. Club of the year, alternative club of the year, i.e. the one that finished outside, say, the top three. I would go for for Brentford. You know, they dare to be different. They're, they're prudently and imaginatively run right from Matt Benham, the owner, downwards through Thomas Frank to his support staff. What about you, Paul? Who would you put in that bracket? I'm with you, Mike. I'm going, to, I'm going for Brentford because to finish 13th with 46 points, that's not bad for a bus stop in Hounslow, is it? I mean, <laughs> you know, and unlike many promoted clubs, uh, Brentford uh, came up with a plan, an idea, uh, you know, a philosophy, if you want to call it that. And I think... To see them go about their work and for it to be successful, 
and to be led by a, a manager who was unproven at that level, but has just done brilliantly, really, and conducted himself so well. The, the pleasure it's brought to Brentford fans, the message it sends to the rest of the league that it, you know, that it can be done. You're not going to go straight into the Champions League positions anytime soon, but but you can come into the Premier League with a good idea, and if you stick with it, you know, it it, it, it can work. And the, the same is true of Brighton, who would be a, an alternative choice, ninth. 51 points, now a top 10 club, you know, despite selling Ben White and Dan Byrne. Again, excellent coaching, excellent recruitment, everybody working to the same plan, sticking together, not panicking. These are the clubs I really admire in many ways because they're making not even maximum use of the resources they have. They're they're exceeding expectations. They're constantly overachieving and they, they, they really are a beacon. They, they really are, te- they really do tell you that the Premier League isn't just about, you know, nation states and oligarchs and plutocrats. Yeah, but it is a very elitist league, <laughs> as, we, as we've been discussing. <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in given that, John, I don't know if you agree with me that if you're looking at an alternative manager of the year, Thomas Frank's an obvious choice, but, but Graham Potter is another obvious choice. Do you think he's likely to be a pursued and eventually poached yeah i think there's a, i think there's a good chance with with, with both frankly actually with both thomas frank and and graham potter i mean i i think that graham potter would be the most obvious fit in the long term as as successor to gareth southgate england manager just because he can see all all the whole picture the way that he runs the club the way that he develops young players even his manner, you know, that, that mild-mannered approach, very calm, very thoughtful, talking, you know, kind of wants to run the organisation that is in Brighton in a responsible fashion and wants to run it well and responsibly. And I just think, you know, when who, if England want to go down the, the English route again after Gareth Southgate, well, I mean, there's only one man, frankly, and that's Graham Potter. And I just think he's so would be so aligned for that and would be such a good choice. I think he's done such a good job in an understated, steady way at Brighton and, and just made them so, so good. The other alternative manager, I know you're sort of kind of, you know, sort of quick fire here, but you have noted him. And I do think this is a good one. It's Antonio Conte. What a job he's done at Spurs since taking over. And yes, he's been combative. Yes, he's blown up, but that's his way. And that's what he would say. Well, that's my method. Method. Um, method. Oh, easy for me to say. <laughs> that's my method. Um, but basically, I just, um, um, you know, I just feel like he has done exceptionally well to take a club that was quite well off it. Almost, I think they were ninth, I think, at various points. And I think that the he's taken them on and getting them into the Champions League level. I, I mean, that that's on different expectations and levels. That that's That's a world-class coach, I think. And he's sort of amongst the best three. And I think Conte actually deserves an awful lot of credit for what he's done. I think he's up there with Klopp and Guardiola for me in terms of, you know, world elite level. But a more down-to-earth, so full of admiration for what Potter's done and Frank. Paul, any any coaches or managers who might be slightly to the edge of the radar? It's interesting, Tony Hodgson, you know, of this parish, he mentioned Xavier Alonso who's got uh, Real Sociedad B promoted, I think it's two years into his apprenticeship. So 
you could there have, you know, that great player evolving into a, a really meaningful coach. Is there any, when you look around, do you think, and we do, don't we? Because we see so many managers and coaches, you get a, sometimes a special feeling, like an instinct about people. Anything you, that come to your mind? I guess the obvious one is is Steve Cooper, who, um, yeah. you know, at Nottingham Forest, what did they have, one point from their first seven games, I think, mm. I read somewhere. And um, they're now in the Premier League after that um, championship playoff final win. I mean, Forest were just going around in circles, weren't they? Very evocative name, a kind of name that you want to see in the Premier League, but you really convinced yourself it was probably never going to happen because they just kept making bad choices and they were just they were just stuck. And yet... Here they are in the Premier League because they appointed a manager from, actually, in many ways, from the FA production line, which, and it's a credit really to the FA. We have to give them credit for, for realising that the English coaching structure was had gone off the rails and, and, you know, they set about trying to produce young coaches, homegrown coaches, and they've had some success. So I'd certainly put Steve Cooper in that bracket. And, um, yeah, Xabi Alonso comes from a generation of players who... As we know, don't need to become managers. Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard didn't need to become managers, did they? But they have a compulsion to do it. And Alonso is obviously a highly intelligent man, very impressive as a player, you know, strong character. It'd be nice to think that that players from that generation, the people who don't really need to do it, will do it and will be successful. John, has anyone particularly impressed you during you know the interviews that you've done throughout the season with uh, managers in the EFL? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and 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 frankly, a couple of sort of kind of were really good to talk to. I did speak to Mark Cooper earlier in the season. Didn't see the season out, unfortunately, but you know, um, and then then done really well again. Rather than Paul Warren. I mean, really, I thought it's so fascinating lucky. character, isn't it? Brilliant character, such a good guy. I thought last season they were very unlucky, and I think sort of kind of time and COVID almost crept up with them, and simply because of postponements. And you know, he's he's fascinating to talk to, and I do think then that pleased to see them go up, and I think the job that Liam Richardson has has, has done at Wigan, sort of re, almost rebuilding a club, is an interesting interesting one. The other one that I enjoyed speaking to, actually, was Marco Silva, who's I know he's a bit better known at Fulham, but I, I, I did actually make the point to him. You seem so much because I think of Marco Silva as kind of this growling, rather moody, mardy sort of chippy, you know, diff- very chippy, yeah, yeah, difficult manager. And this was a, I know his team was winning, but this by no means clinched promotion. By the when I spoke to him, and he, he seemed like a different person. And I think that it, I think it's. Think he's out to prove a point, trying to sort of get a team back up and can be competitive again, show what he's about in the Premier League. But also, he feels it felt to me like he was a lot happier in his own skin. So I think that next season maybe Fulham is one to watch. You know, it's all about who they get in Fulham and how they strengthen and what they do. And but I do feel as if this time maybe they've got half a chance, and I'd love to see that actually for for various reasons, but I've got a real soft spot for Fulham, so I'd love to see them um, stay up next year. Mm. What about an alternative player of the year, Paul? I don't look any further than than Declan Rice, who's really emotionally engaged to West Ham, but at the same time, you know, the reality of the game is that he's probably got to now start looking after number one and get that big move. Yeah, I, uh, Declan Rice would certainly be an alternative player of the year. 
think he's going to become one of the great Premier League players. He's got so much going for him. He's a tremendous screening player, but he can attack, he can pass, he's got character, he's physically strong, he's imposing, and he's got a lovely nature about him as well. You know, you're never, you're never going to have to kind of wave a stick at him to get him to apply himself. He's, he's just, I just, I, I really, really enjoy watching him, and I think he's, he's just going to the very top. Rhys James is, is another alternative player of the year, perhaps uh, made huge strides this year when he's not been injured. Looks like he can play all over the pitch all of a sudden, and, and got. Just massive ability and is starting to realise how good he is. So I think I would predict great things for Reese James. I think we're going to talk about unsung heroes later, but James Ward-Prowse as well. I can't remember him having a poor game. I mean, he's, he's the best dead ball striker in the Premier League. Led the way on crosses with 302. He's missed two Premier League games in three seasons and scored 10 goals this year, which is his best return. So I, I, just, I just think any team in the Premier League would want James Ward-Prowse in their squad. Yeah, that's for sure. And I suppose when you're talking about unsung heroes, John, what about a player like Mark Noble at West Ham or late of West Ham now, the season's over? You know, there's someone, uh, again, who's emotionally wedded to that football club, West Ham. But I always get the sense there's more to him than, than that. He's a very, very thoughtful character. And it wouldn't surprise me if we hear from him you know, maybe he's a pundit, but certainly I think, you know, I could see him going in and say running the PFA. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, he's been quite, he's been quite mixed, isn't he, about whether he's going to sort of stay in the game as as a manager. It'd be fantastic that I think that would be such a great shout. I hadn't thought of that before, and, and and yet actually that seems such a good, good idea. I just feel as if you know, there's so much to be said for organisations like the, the PFA or the LMA in the, in this, you know, era of kind of incredibly well-paid players and managers at the top to be so respectful and to keep that link to the, the players in sort of, and, and managers in league one, league two is such an important thing. And I think it is fantastic to have someone that sort of understands it. I do think the PFA wants to go on a sort of a different path and Mark Noble, I think he's got so much to offer within the game. I think he's fantastic. Sounds to me like he needs a bit of a breather, basically. He's certainly talking about it because it's been so intense and that final year has been so intense. But I really hope he doesn't stay out for too long because I think he's got a real big future in it within the game, really, and can offer a very, very valid perspective, I think. Mm. What about young players, Paul? You know, that, that is a phenomenon over the last three or four years. Quite a few of the the players from, say, England's Junior World Cup win in 2017 have come through. I've been particularly impressed by Joe Goldhart at Leeds. You know, someone, you know, complete steal at 700,000 from Wigan who were in administration at the time. Any others out there that have impressed you? Yeah, I like Conor Gallagher, really. He, he'd qualify, wouldn't he, as a young player? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I just think he's a coach's dream. I, I really do. I, I don't know where he's going to end up or or quite how good he's going to be, but he's got an infectious kind of energy about him and he's <clears throat> he's very capable, pops up all over the pitch, he's always on the move, great hunger for the game, good ability, good feet, good eyes. He's one I'd certainly, you know, nominate as one of the young players of the year. What about, you know, at the other end of that emotional spectrum, John, the lost soul of the game at the moment? You know, I look at, Deli Alley, 
He's 26, and he should be logically at his peak. Everton are said to be considering selling him even before those incremental bonuses that are due to Spurs kick in. It's horrible watching him, actually, at the moment, yeah. I've always found. Yeah, I, I, I find it really difficult as well because he's such a nice guy. And, mm. I, you know, there is... Do you think he could do the route of sort of Chris Smalling or, or Tammy Abraham and maybe go to Italy and revive his career? Yeah, there? maybe, because I think it's brilliant to watch, isn't it? I watched that, that, that Conference League final and I thought Chris Smalling was just there as an absolute rock and he's re-established himself and, you know, really enjoying it and, and Tammy Abraham making a different niche for himself. Deli Alley, well, he hasn't started games. And it's, you know, the Arsenal was sort of a rare opportunity at the end of the season. It's just like, where's this going? The structure of the deal when he joined struck me as, as strange. Well, you know, if you think that basically you're signing a player who's got fantastic pedigree and a fully-fledged England international, why are you signing him with so many clauses and what, why are Spurs allowing that to happen? And... Because there's sell-on implications, I think, you know, for MK Dons as well. And it's, it's a, such a strange deal. And it, it feels like they've used up their loan allocation and didn't almost want to take a chance on the player. Frank Lampard has spoke glowingly about him and trying to get the best out of him. But it sounds like they're, sometimes they're talking about a player who's completely broken or a young player who's still trying to make it. We're talking about one of the biggest stars of England's World Cup campaign in 2018. Fantastic talent. Fantastic knack for goal and fantastic assists. And clearly just needs strong guidance here and an opportunity surely to get back there. Or are we saying that he's given up and, and football's given up on him? So if ever there was one that sort of kind of epitomised that lost soul, then it would be him because there's an unbelievably talented player. The issue with Deli Ali for me was always been, and someone said this to me years ago, there's no grey areas with Deli Alli. He's either like man of the match, superstar, scoring goals, providing assists or almost anonymous on the pitch. And frankly, if you are playing to those parallels, then basically you have to have some sort of confidence or belief because if you're not scoring or providing assists, well, what else are you doing on the pitch? And his career has drifted too long. I'd love to see him get back. Mm. We're talking about disappointments. The biggest disappointment, Paul, do we need to look beyond... Ralph Ranick's interim management of, of Manchester United, maybe right man, wrong time, wrong role. You know, to no one's great surprise, on Sunday it was announced that he's not going to take up the consultancy. He's going to stay with and do the the Austrian national team job, which which seems bizarre because the consultancy side was probably the role that he was suited for. You know, we've talked ad nauseam about Manchester United this season. The depth of the disappointment. Has that surprised you? You know, we've, we've all been around, haven't we? I can't remember a season that has imploded so badly, so spectacularly. No, when Manchester United win 16 of their 38 Premier League games, I mean, every every alarm bell in the building is going off, isn't it? I mean, that, and that is... What we're going to find out now is whether that's, that's the, the nadir uh, and the start of something better or whether this spiral they're in is just going to carry on and consume Eric Ten Hag along the way. You know, I, I, I feel for him. I worry him, worry for him. He's, he's, he's walking into a, a rotten culture there. Uh, he's walking into a situation where he probably needs to get rid of 10 players and bring 10 players in. He, but he's got the, the people above him. He will soon find out 
sometimes make decisions that aren't based on footballing need and they're based on business need and all, all the things, as you said, Mike, that we've talked about ad nauseum. But, I, 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 yeah, I do think they're at a point where they have to look at themselves and say, well, are we going to get back to being a, a, a football club now or are we just going to continue to be a brand from which the owners extract quite considerable amounts of money in dividends and so on? You know, what is the purpose of Manchester United? Why does it exist? It's a big question, but they, they need to answer it. Mm. Signing of the season, John? You know, obviously, Luis Diaz is, is the one that people talk about all the time. But since we're looking outside the top two, Dejan Kulusevski, you know, a real instant impact after making his debut against Manchester City in mid-Feb. Spurs actually got their recruitment right on that one, didn't they? Well, funnily enough, if you could compare and contrast, they clearly went for Luis Diaz, didn't get him and ended up almost with Kulusevski. So I actually think, though, for what they needed and was it was actually Kulusevski rather than Diaz, because Diaz has been fantastic on his flank, if, if you like, and now that, that they would have had to swap flanks, if you think about it. Kulusevski is, is fitted in much more naturally into the Son-Kane axis, and he was almost seen, wasn't he, as the other reason why I think this is a great shout is that basically when they signed him, Tottenham fans, and there was a lot of negativity about it, saying, oh, they kind of signed the two unwanted players from Juventus. And both have been excellent, you know, him and Bentenker. And I think Kulazeski was, 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 was what named as the most exciting player, uh, young player in Syria a couple of, a couple of years ago. And has really fulfilled that. He's lively, he's busy. It shows that basically you can do good business at a good price. So I do think that he fits into that mould. I'm not saying that Diaz <clears throat> won't be a great player. I think he's an absolute superstar. But I just think actually sometimes square pegs in the round holes don't necessarily work. And, and then basically they've both ended up with, you know, probably a good deal out of it. Mm. What do you consider the most significant moment in its broadest context, Paul? The thing, obviously, that comes to mind is Jake Daniels coming out. Is normalisation of sexuality, whatever that sexuality is, football's final frontier? I, I think that was the biggest moment, Mike, because, um, you know, football as a, as a lens on society hasn't always been a good one. And there are, there are issues in football that haven't been addressed. There are lots of issues, I should say, that have been addressed by lots of people very bravely. But this was the sort of, not the last frontier, but it was one of the big ones. And I think I was quite encouraged by the reaction. I think it was a relief in football that a, a player had felt capable of or, or able to do that, uh, you know, 30 years after Justin Fashionu. And the support he received, I thought, suggested that actually football can get to grips with this and, and, and grow up and move on and that, you know, that change is possible. We'll find out more next season when he's playing, of course, and we'll find out more about the reaction. But, yeah, I, I think that was a, a seminal moment for the game. Mm. In terms of other issues, John, you know, this is a delicate one, obviously, but the Saudi issue at Newcastle... Do you think it's likely to fester? Yeah, I don't think it's going away, particularly when I saw the away shirt 
which, you know, <laughs> I know kind of people in the Premier League said, well, yet to be confirmed, but let's see. Because it's clearly done in Saudi colours. And and I just think that, yeah, that look, there is, there is this thing, isn't there, where I think the Newcastle fans are enjoying the moment and enjoying the success, if you like. And I know they're sort of champion what what Eddie Howe has done and no one has kept them up, you know, from, from such a low position before. Well, frankly, no one has no one has also been able to keep a team up while spending about 90 million quid in the transfer <laughs> window. So come on, let's offer some perspective here. And I think that perspective has, has been lost somewhere along the way. I, I'm not sure that a sort of Amanda Staveley lap of honours is particularly fitting. And I kind of think sometimes you read the room and, you know what sort of sort of a stake and and I do think yeah I do think that they are absolutely finding very willing sort of kind of fans and and taking it on because you know the sort of funding of the food banks for example and the sort of kind of that that complete uh, you know unwavering loyalty towards their club and who's who's at who's at the controls I think we are slightly in danger here of you know losing a bit of perspective. You know, I mean that that weekend when questions were, were were asked of Eddie Howe about sort of kind of when we had over eighty beheadings that weekend. I mean, it's a it's a valid question. It's a valid question, and and I don't think a manager should be kind of moving away from that. So I think if we if we want to talk about sort of other issues at other clubs, then I don't think we should be running away from from you know from Newcastle either. Yeah, it, as a rule of thumb, it always makes me nervous when the owners appear at least to court the spotlight you know i think of of the of the tifos at, at watford for instance with the with the pozzo family uh, which just strikes me as a, if you've got a 50 foot banner of your owner what is going on there but i suppose we need to to to, to wrap this up chaps i suppose i'd like to end on and up or certainly with um a, a very personalized opinion what's your hope for next season paul can you start please <laughs> well, uh, it's a bit late to hope that nation states uh, uh, stopped from buying football clubs because I, I think that is the, potentially the point of, of ruination for the world game is when countries can buy football clubs. That should never be allowed. But I'm not optimistic about it being reversed. So I hope that... Uh, I'm, I'm going to go for Nottingham Forest, actually. I just hope that um, Nottingham Forest can come up into the... Premier League and revive something or help to revive something that's that's under threat, which is historic, strong footballing towns and cities, you know, living in a meritocratic game where it's possible to to make headway and be successful and, and give your make your people happy, give the fans pleasure. Because without that meritocracy, that 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 ladder the game is going to become fixed as a, as a as a hierarchy as a financial hierarchy it always has been to some extent but i just when you go around the country in a, in our job and in any job and you see the depth of 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 cultural allegiance to football clubs by their fans you want that to live forever and you want clubs like nottingham forest to be able to come back and and thrive with all their history and tradition so i suppose that's my hope mike really for next year John, well, my, my hope, and this is a bit sort of fairy tale, a bit fanciful, but it is World Cup year, of course. So I wanted to go in a slightly different direction. 
And, and and of course, my 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 wish would be to see England win the World Cup, and and who knows, you know, it might be a wonderful thing mid season, and you know, get caught up in that. But I, I I do have I must say I have such lingering worries about this this tournament, which has been you know criticised, questioned since day one, and it finishes what in the third week of December, just before Christmas. It will feel so unusual. It will feel so strange. And I don't know, I just feel as if what I'd love to see is something positive come out of it. And then maybe that's just complete fantasy. And, you know, this, the World Cup still doesn't feel right to me in sort of kind of November, December. I'm still still adapting, having been to the draw recently in Doha. I'm still thinking, how on earth did we, did we come to this? It still doesn't feel right. And yet, in, in, in my world, the World Cup is is still the dominant force in any year. And I just think that, I don't know, what is what is my hope for next season? My hope is that basically it kind of, it can either have a positive effect or learn lessons, you know, whether that's be, it's, it shakes people up and, and, and sees things, you know, we see things in a different way. I just hope that something positive comes out of the World Cup. I really, really do. That would be my hope. Like, like Paul, I share his wish for Nottingham Forest because, you know, I just remember those sort of kind of Asian days. So easy to forget what a dominant force Forest were for a particular generations. And I just love that to see them be sort of another Brentford. And Brentford are now the template, but I don't know. But I've tried to sort of think so long and hard about sort of how to frame it for, for the World Cup. But I hope either it's a wake-up call to say we approach things differently for tournament football and and learn the lessons and stick to the to the old tradition or it takes us on to a new thing. There's been so much talk about biennial World Cups and, 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 and so on. And I think it, I think we should look at this World Cup in this winter and think just how precious international football is. And maybe that will be sort of kind of reset time and say we shouldn't take it for granted and we shouldn't exploit it and we shouldn't run it in, in, a, in a negative way and we should get back to basics and, and run, frankly, what the what the vast majority of football fans want to see, which is a summer tournament in the best possible venues, in the best possible way. And, you know, maybe maybe we can learn some lessons here. Yeah, well, I, you know, what Paul said actually struck a chord with me about the meritocracy of the game. Now, if you think about it, the clubs which have been relegated from the Premier League, Norwich, Watford and Burnley, they're all admirable clubs in their own different ways. But, and I might get some stick for this, I know, but is it such a bad thing if none of the three actually bounce back immediately? Because we're at a time now when football's in danger of becoming too predictable. I think we all need to write new stories and follow new challenges. So, you know, as I said, I expect to be criticised for that, but please tell me what you feel about it. In the meantime, with another season in the books, I just want to thank John and Paul, not just for today, but for everything they've done throughout the season. And I want to thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Enjoy the summer.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, 